want to invite you this morning to turn with me. Before we go to Mark, if you'll turn with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 7. I won't have you stand for this. I'll have you stand when we get to Mark's gospel. But I wanted you to follow along in Jeremiah chapter 7 as I begin in verse 1. Because Jesus, in our text this morning from Mark's gospel, Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7. And as I was preparing this week and and looked back into Jeremiah 7, I found it to be very interesting in the context of what we're looking at uh, from Mark this morning. Many of the things that we see in our own culture, many of the issues that we face in our own time, are things that God addresses in his conversation with Jeremiah here in chapter 7. So I want to begin reading in verse 1, and when I finish we'll flip forward to Mark's gospel. Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, And to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did at Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. And now if you'd stand with me as we read Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it is not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You may be seated. Our text this morning pits two ideas against one another. In Jeremiah... Chapter 7, we see twice used the expression, or at least the word, deception, or some form of that word. The people of God were deceived that they could continue living the way they were, and yet show up to God's house, where God's name was, where God's presence dwelt. And they could spend some time with him and then leave. And upon their leaving, go back to the things that they were doing before and yet be okay. They had become so ritualistic in their worship that, that simply showing up in the place where God's name was, was sufficient to have a relationship, a meaningful relationship with God. They were deceived. They were deceived into believing that. And so in our text this morning from Mark's gospel, Jesus pits deception versus reality. We see two incidents here in this text of deception And Jesus combats that deception with reality. What I fear too often happens in the church is that we are deceived by our actions into believing that we are better off than we are. We are deceived by the things that are happening in our life. We are deceived by by our wealth, we're deceived by our prominence, we're deceived by our place in the world into believing that somehow we are better off than we are. During our prayer meeting on Wednesday, someone brought up the fact that our International Mission Board, which in the history of the world has been the most efficient Um, missionary sending force in the world. 
But it came to light over the last couple of weeks that our success in sending missionaries was partly by deception. We kept hearing great stories of the work that was being done, but what, what we didn't know as Southern Baptists is that, that and, and it's mainly because we hadn't paid attention, was that we were spending a lot more money than we had. In the last several years, our, our International Mission Board had been so hard up for money, they had been so short on, on the cash that they needed, they had, they had sold some properties to take care of it, they had had some trust that they had cashed out or whatever else, and they had spent $200 million more than they had brought in. And that had worked for a, a, a little while, but it had come to the point where that wasn't going to work anymore. I mean, that's a lot of money. You can't just magically make that appear every year. And so what is happening now is that there are going to be hundreds, hundreds of missionaries like the Websters who we had with us in July who are going to have to come home. And can't stay there anymore. They're going to have to come home. They're not going to be in those places that we need them. They're not going to be in those places that, that desperately need to hear about Christ anymore. They're, they're going to have to come home. Six to eight hundred of them. Our missionary group that was once over five thousand because of reductions, is going to be down to four. You think about how big the world is, and if you've traveled very much or studied much about populations, the world is a really, really big place, and 5,000 was not adequate to start with. The deception was that we were doing a good job, and the reality is that we needed to do much, much better. You think about the enormous wealth that the church in the United States has. You think about the enormous wealth that the Baptists, forget everyone else, the Baptists in the United States have. The billions and trillions of dollars of wealth among the 16 million Southern Baptists. And yet we, we were deceived. We were deceiving the world into believing that we were serious about missions when now we've got to call all of these missionaries home. I don't know which ones. I don't know who. Maybe, maybe ones we know. Maybe ones we've had here. Maybe ones we've prayed for in our mission organizations, but they will have to come home because we had deceived the world into believing we cared about missions. But we really didn't. At least not enough. Jesus addresses deception and reality. And this is difficult for us to swallow because when he begins to look at the core 
of this fig tree and the core of the temple, he finds the problems there immediately. And, and what you and I do as we look at ourselves and as we look at other Christians, we don't want to dig deep enough to find where the deception is at. We live in an age where we say don't, we, we can't judge anybody. Jesus does an awful lot of judgment in this passage. We live in a, a time where we don't want anyone judging us. We'll pull out the passage. If someone tries to say something to us, well, the Bible tells you to pull the plank out of your eye before looking at the speck in mine. When the reality is we've all got huge holes in our life full of deception. And Jesus does not deal kindly with that. Look where he begins in that first verse. They came to, sorry, on the following day, verse 12, they came from Bethany and he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. So he looks, and there in the distance is a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now this passage here has been one that has caused great difficulty for interpreters for the the 2,000 years of the church's existence. It causes them great difficulty because some people want to say this is out of character for Jesus that he would do this sort of thing. Others have tried to to twist it around and they get into the biology of uh, fig trees and and how there's at different times of the seasons there are different things on a a fig tree that you can eat. And, And I don't know that any of that is relevant to this because ultimately what we see here is an enacted parable. Jesus acts out this parable, this teaching for his disciples. And it ultimately comes down to deception. Regardless of what time of the season it is, when Jesus sees this fig tree, it looks like it should have something on it. It's got the leaves there. It, it's in, it's you know, got all of its magnificence there. And, and he sees it and it, it should have something on it, right? When it looks like that. When it, when it looks good. When it looks good on the outside. It should have some fruit, right? But Jesus goes and he inspects it and there is no fruit. It appeared to be good. The tree appears to be good for the person who is walking down the road and sees it. But upon further inspection, especially inspection by someone who knows what they're looking for, there's nothing there. There's no fruit. And interestingly, the last verse there, Jesus curses the fig tree. He says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
Now, this is the part that, that just, just makes it difficult for some people to think this really happened. Because they love, everybody loves, right, Jesus, meek, and mild. Everybody loves sweet Jesus. Everybody loves, hey, little kids, come to me. Hey, you know, love, love, you know, all this. Everybody loves that Jesus, right? And then people, they don't really like Jesus who gets in your business. And Jesus who is harsh. And Jesus who tells you you're wrong. So like most people want to just skip this. You know, you go to some of these mega churches with some of these uh, pastors who write these fancy books and tell you how great everything is. They skip this chapter. Not that they preach through books of the Bible anyways or preach the Bible, period. But if they were, they would have to skip this chapter because it doesn't fall into their narrative. It doesn't take care of, you know, it doesn't have, you know, nice Jesus, nice Jesus. Then we get into this guy. Jesus looks at this tree, which the, the Bible's already told us, it's not a season for figs. But the tree looks like it should have fruit on it. And Jesus looks at this tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him. That's important. Because a few verses later, they come back by. Verse 20, they come back by. And the fig tree had withered away to its roots. Peter says, Jesus, look. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Nobody was ever going to eat from it again. It had withered into nothing, to its root. It was dead. It was decaying. Why did he act that out for them? Why did he act out this parable for them? Why did he put this this little show on, if you will, for them? Why did he do this? What did that fig tree done to Jesus? Well, in one sense, nothing. But it was deceptive. And Jesus pronounces harsh judgment on its deception. Because he did not want his disciples to be like this fig tree. Jesus did not want his disciples to ever be in a situation where people looked at their life from afar... Remember, he sees the fig tree from far off. And so people see the life of his disciples from far off and go, Hey, look at that guy. Man, that, that must be, this, this guy must be a good disciple. I mean, look at it, you know, full bloom there, just like this tree. Leaves were on it. It was, it was there. But you get closer to it and you begin to inspect it. And there's no fruit. You pull back the leaves that kind of give it the good appearance like it's, it's got it all together, like it's doing the things that it's supposed to do. And yet you pull the leaves back and there's, there's no fruit. Isn't that the life of a whole lot of Christians? Now we can get into the debate of whether you're a Christian or not, and that's... For another time, we, I'd love to have that discussion with you if you have questions about it. But, but that's not supposed to be the life of a disciple of Christ. 
when we look, we look at our life. When we look at the lives of others, there's supposed to be fruit there. There's supposed to be the results of God's grace and mercy. It's interesting because the, the Bible kind of has a, a twofold thought about fruit. You know, we often think about fruit as, as simply seeing people come to Christ. You know, the, the fruit of somebody's ministry is people coming to Christ. But, you know, when Paul talks about fruit, he talks about the results of the Spirit living within you. He talks about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. He talks about those being the results of the Spirit working in you. When the Spirit is planted in your heart, the things that grow out are those fruits of the Spirit. And yet, it's easy to stand far off from my life, from your life, and say, hey, look, look how nice they look. Look how, look how good things are going. But then you get up close and you begin to inspect it. You can't find it there. Look at the number of Christians over the last several weeks even whose lives on television or in social media seem to be wonderful. But scandal after scandal after scandal has demonstrated that deep down they had problems that were not being tended to. The number of relationships that have been ruined. Because deep down, again on the outside it looked great. But deep down, there was no fruit. Deep down, there was deception. God calls on us to give fruit all the time. See, for this fig tree, there may have been a proper season. But we as Christians need to be careful because that excuse doesn't fly with God. I hear that excuse all the time. People are too busy to do things in God's service. Get real for a minute. Some of you will be too busy to come to revival in November. Why? What's more important? I struggle sometimes when I say something like that because I have to go back and remember, I get paid to come to church. It's a little different scenario. But I go back and look at where I was before I got paid to come to church, like when I didn't. Guess where I was at when we had revival? And friends, I've confessed to you, I've shared with you my struggles as a teenager with disbelief. My struggles in my relationship with God. But I felt something within me that compelled me to be at church. Compelled me when we had a mission project to go on the mission project. Compelled me to work for free at a camp for children sharing the gospel. Even when I struggled in my own disbelief. God pushed me. 
How often do we give the excuse of the fig tree, it's, it's not my season. It's not my season for service. That's not my strong suit. That's not my thing. That's not what I do best. If, if Jesus will curse a fig tree who did not provide fruit out of season for him, What's going to be the judgment on us for our refusal to bear fruit in the season that God has called us? He doesn't, he doesn't call any Christians to be deceptive. He doesn't call any of us to look good on the outside so we keep other people from inspecting further. I don't find that anywhere in his word that he calls any of us to that type of lifestyle. But friends, I want to promise you that for the world and for other people in the church, it is easy for you to deceive. It's easy. You, you can deceive me, no problem. It's not as easy as it was for me five or ten years ago, but you can do it. If you want to put the work in to deceiving me or your Sunday school teacher or your family or your friends at church, you can do that. Let me promise you, you can put in the effort to deceive. You can have the leaves, and most people are never going to get close enough to see if you're bearing any fruit in your life. But it's not going to work for Jesus. had a man tell me the other day that he and I would find out something together in heaven. It's a man that I respect. It's a man that I like. It's a man that I don't agree with on hardly anything. But the problem is, he and I are not going to have any type of conversation in heaven unless something changes in his life. Maybe you're here this morning. Knowing that that's your situation too. You can talk about God. You can talk about the things he's done in your life or whatever. But you know that all of that is something you have generated. You're carrying out a great deception. I want to promise you that you do not fool God. One day when you stand before him and he is going through the names in his book. You will not be able to get yours there through deception. You'll not be able to talk him into adding you at the last minute because you always meant to take care of that and didn't. He, Jesus, demands that his disciples bear fruit. And so I ask, have you ever used that excuse? It's not my season, it's not my time. You've used that to get out of some type of service to make some commitment to the Lord that He's called you to do. You've used that to bypass witnessing to someone or caring for someone in need. Go back and remember what Jeremiah says in chapter 7. He tells us to set aside our sin. He tells us to care for those who are hurting. And in that we have our restoration with God. But it doesn't stop with just this parable that is acted out with the fig tree. He goes on to talk about what is going on in the temple. They leave there, if you follow along with me, they leave there 
in verse 14. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. And when he comes into the temple, he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. To kind of give you a description of what the temple looks like, this is the, the third temple. It keeps getting destroyed. Ultimately, it is destroyed again about 40 years after this takes place, and it has never been rebuilt. So the temple, it had different levels, different areas, if you will, that symbolized your closeness with God. And so ultimately, in the center of the temple, in the, the, the smallest area of the temple, is the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where God's presence dwelt, and that's where the chief priest uh, would go and would make a um, sacrifice once a year for all of the people. And as you expanded from there, the areas grew larger, and it was... The thought and, and the design of the temple that, that before you got out to the to, to you were actually outside of the temple, there was a place where anyone could have access to God. And so the the outermost part of the temple is is the area where where even a Gentile who was not a Jew but wanted to worship God could come in and carry out worship of God. Obviously, he couldn't go further in because of who he was, but he, he could have access to God in this outermost part. But when Jesus arrives, and this was apparently something that had just started happening very recently, Jesus arrives to the temple and he enters into this first court, the court of the Gentiles. And it's not a very worshipful environment. It's just chaotic. There's, there's animals there. There's money changers there. There's, there's people doing commerce inside the temple. Now, there was a place to do that outside the temple. But over time, and again, re really close to Jesus' time there, they had began to move those things inside the temple. And so this place that is called by God's name. This place that he has declared as holy has become this, this marketplace where people are buying and selling and there is chaos going on. Honestly, and I am as much for contemporary music and loud music in church and all of that as maybe anyone, but isn't that what a lot of churches have turned into? It's no longer a place of worship, it's just become chaotic. Not just in the worship service, but throughout the, the week and the, the daily routine of the church, it's just chaotic. There's no time to, to stop and to enjoy a house of prayer. No time to, to stop and enjoy a worshipful experience with God. And for those who were outside of God's family but wanted to worship God, there's no longer a place to come and pray and worship. Because there's 
animals and money changers and loudness. It was like going to a flea market where there's just constant chaos. And so Jesus comes in and he begins to turn over the tables and disrupt what is going on. Now this was a very large area, so I don't think we have to, to assume that Jesus took out the whole place. We're talking about acre after acre of, of space within that court of the Gentiles. But it's, it's clear that he disrupts what's going on. He disrupts the, the money changing and disrupts the selling of these animals. And he would not allow, verse 16 says, anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he, he begins to teach. So again, he acts this out. Now people don't like this because this is angry Jesus. This is Jesus getting a whip, we read in the other Gospels, and driving people around. This is Jesus turning over tables. This is Jesus being angry. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like what's going on. And so he begins to teach them in verse 17. And he says to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? What were the Jewish people doing by, by moving this into the court of the Gentiles? They were diminishing the religious leader were. were. They were uh, diminishing outsiders' relationship with God. This was the only place in all the world where a Gentile could come and worship God in His presence. It's the only place that's available to them. And they've turned it into a marketplace. Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. What a great picture of what Jesus has come to do because none of us would have been allowed to get close to God in the temple. None of us would have been allowed to get close to where He was. We would have been far off. We would have been stuck in this chaos that is happening here. And yet He says, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have turned it in, He says, you have made it a den of robbers. And here's the deception. On the outside, on the outside, it, it looked good. On the outside, and, and it's almost finished being built at this time. The, the temple has, has been under construction for a long time. And on the outside, it's, it's looking nice. On the outside, it, it seems like appropriate worship of God has been restored. But you get on the inside, you get inside the walls, and what you find out is it's not what God designed it to be. It's not the place that is a house of prayer. But it has become a den of robbers. So he drives them out. Of course, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they looked for a way to destroy him because they're mad. But his disciples get to see it again. And this time we read there in this section, the disciples are there, obviously they hear it because he's teaching, but, but who hears it? The chief priests and the scribes. So before his disciples hear 
Don't be like this fig tree that's covered in leaves and yet has no fruit. And here, the scribes and the chief priests here, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of robbers. It, It looks good on the outside, and it's good in its intent, but you have not carried it out to be what I have called it to be and designed it to be. When you look at at everything that God does in his temple, he lays out everything. He lays out the design. He lays out how everything within the temple is supposed to be used. He lays out who can do what, when, and where they should do it. And they have taken God's design and they've destroyed it. They've taken a place that was supposed to be for worship and they have turned it into a place to make money. A place where people would have access to God and they have used it to push people further away from God. Oftentimes we are deceptive in our worship. We allow things to pass for worship that are actually much less than worship. Not only do we put up leaves on ourselves and never have fruit, Not only do we try to look good but never have that relationship with Christ that bears fruit in our heart and in our action. But we let an hour and a half on Sunday morning pass for our worship. We let that be the extent of our worship and believe that that is okay. And it's deceptive, right? Because you can leave here and you can go and tell someone, hey, I go to church. If someone were to come to your door this week and assuming they're not Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons and they knock on your door and they want to tell you about Christ, you stop them. Hey, I go down to First Baptist Iker. If they know me, they may stay longer to continue trying to to lead you to some type of appropriate knowledge of Christ. But they may just say, okay, and go on. And you've, you've deceived them. We have reduced worship down to a service. And we can say that we're better than the other churches around us because we have an hour and a half instead of an hour. That's... It's 50% more worship. We're so much better than the rest of these churches that only go 11 to 12. We start earlier and we go longer. We're better than they are. Except that's not how it works at all. We could go three hours or four hours or five and that would not be appropriate worship. Now, let me promise you that if we had four or five hour services, we would weed out some of you. A few for health reasons and the rest would show you were never really of us, right? Because I'm going to go down there and get an hour's worth because that's adequate. But is that not the problem? If you believe that 9 to 1030... Skip Sunday school and get to lunch earlier if you believe that is adequate. 
Have you not been deceived? How about the worship through your giving? A lot of preachers will tell you 10%. You've noticed two and a half years, I've, I've never said that, that I'm aware of. I've never said that to you. Is 10% adequate? Some of you might need to start with 1%. Is that adequate worship? Is it, is it adequate worship to sit down with your paycheck and measure out an exact amount and send that to the church and feel justified? I think of Jesus' parable. You got a sinner, you got a religious leader. The sinner pours his heart out before God. And the religious leader looks and says, At least I'm not like this guy. But for us, being able to turn to someone else and saying, At least I'm not like him, is adequate worship. But is it? If we have levels like that where we think all we've got to do is be better than the next guy, guess what? There's a lot of people that are a lot better than us. We talk about missions, and there's a lot of people that go. They sacrifice everything, including their lives. So they're better than you. I'm not going to lie. Their faith is just stronger than ours is. So if that's our comparison, if that's what we want, we want to be better than 51% of other Christians and we feel justified. Is that adequate? See, God had designed this temple to be a place of genuine worship and they had turned it into something else and they passed it off as worship. They turned it into a marketplace of pigeons and money changers and they passed that off as worship. Have we allowed other things to invade our worship? Have we allowed ourselves to pass off mediocre church attendance for worship? Because if so, that's not pleasing. That's not pleasing at all to God. It doesn't bring Him joy when we do that. It doesn't make Him excited when we do that. If you've tuned out the entire service this morning, God was not impressed when you walked through the back door. He wasn't. If you came this morning and your heart wasn't ready to worship, you weren't ready to hear what God would say through the music, what God would say to you through your giving, what He would say through His Word this morning. If you are not ready for that, if you have not received that, God is not up there with an attendance sheet marking present when you walk through the back door. Now let me promise you, He knows when you're absent. But showing up is not enough. 
You know, we think about, you know, I love sports. Football season has started, and it's just, you know, ex- I'm excited about that. And a big part of sports is showing up, but guess what? All throughout college football yesterday, two teams showed up to play. But it was not good enough to simply show up. You take the best team in the country, take the best team in any sport at any level. Showing up is not good enough. You better play and know what you're doing. In college and high school, I was in theater, and I showed up to a lot of rehearsals, and I showed up every time we had a play. But guess what? If you got up there and you didn't know your lines, it was awfully embarrassing. If you got up there and you had not put on the right costume, you had not properly aged yourself with makeup, it was embarrassing. You were not who you were supposed to be. We've traded it for false worship. And it's simply not adequate. But let me show you, and we'll begin to finish up. It's the pain of me getting a watch. I had like a lot left, but to be fair, what's it look like then? Because I've beat you up for like 35, 40 minutes now about deception. And Jesus has done that. This is for his disciples. They cannot, if they're going to do the things that he has called them to do, they cannot live a life of deception. So what does he tell them? Peter tells them when they're walking back and they see the dead fig tree, Peter says, hey, there's the fig tree you cursed. It's, It's dead. I'm pretty sure the disciples, they... He's caught their attention. And so what does he say? He says, first have faith in God. Verse 22. The disciples of Christ are to live by faith. We don't live by deception. We live by faith. Have faith in God. Then he talks about their prayer life. They've got to believe the things that they're praying. I'm amazed. When I hear Christians pray, and they pray for these amazing things, but I don't really believe that they believe they can happen. I hear pastors pray for revival. They want God to send revival in our country, which we desperately need. But at the same time, they believe we're too far gone. I hear Christians pray for people that are sick, but they don't believe that God heals people anymore. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, verse 23, whoever says of this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, Jesus uses hyperbole here. He's not telling you to go out and talk to mountains. He's saying, I want you to know that the God who has made everything, who has made this mountain, is the one you're praying to. You're not praying to someone who is incompetent. You're not praying to someone who is without power. There is no need to deceive the world. You have me. I've created you. I've made you what you are, and I'm in control. He says, therefore, since since this is the God who you're praying to, therefore, in verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Believe, past tense. When we go to our Father in prayer, we should go in praying in His name, believing that God is going to do it. 
As a matter of fact, he says, believe that God's already done it. Now, this is different than the prosperity gospel prayers you're going to hear on television. Oh, Lord, please let so-and-so plant more money into my ministry so that, that he will be blessed beyond measure and all this. We don't give. I hope you don't give. Please stop giving if you believe God owes you something back because of your gifts. The proper understanding of all that we have, our time, our talents, our finances, is that they belong to God and He has lent them to us. We could send 800 new missionaries instead of calling 800 new home if Southern Baptists would believe that the things they have belong to God. Evangelicals in the United States give something like 2%. We spend more, I'm sure, at McDonald's than we do on mission. It's not, don't quote me on that stat. I just made it up, but it sounds right. There's a lot of us Baptists that eat a lot of McDonald's. And he says here, we, we've got faith. We've got to have faith there. We pray in faith. And then he says in the last verse that one of the marks of the disciples is forgiveness. Whenever you stand praying... Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Friends, we are living in a different type of relationship than everyone else. We don't have a deceptive relationship. We have a relationship where we have faith, where we are believing in the things that we pray. We are offering forgiveness to those who have wronged us. We are giving forgiveness. We are receiving forgiveness. We are having this relationship with one another that is, that is open and honest and not full of deception. I worry because I, I, I like believing in people. I like believing that, that, that deep down you're, you're a good person. Deep down you're, you're, your faith is really strong. But you know, you know whether or not you've been deceptive. Whether or not your life does not line up with what Christ has called us to do. You, you, you know whether or not there's fruit present in your life. You know the quality and content of your worship. We're to worship in spirit and in truth. And worshiping in spirit and in truth means shedding the deception. Would we be open enough to be honest starting with God? That there are places in our life where our chief task is deception. See, I'm getting closer to the point where I stop trying to deceive God. Man, it seems like every passing week and month Conviction is immediate for me. It used to be you could put it off a little bit. Conviction is just instantaneous. And that's good. That's, that's good for us. But if you say, Pastor, I, I never feel convicted about anything. 
It's a problem. Because you've begun to deceive yourself. You're no longer deceiving the world. You're no longer deceiving the other people at church or your family or the people you work with. You've begun to deceive yourself. And friends, deception of ourselves leads us straight to hell. Deceiving ourselves keeps us on a path of sin that keeps us separated from God. And so I would ask you this morning, have you allowed deception... Have you allowed that to become your dominant form of worship? Have you allowed that to be the thing that keeps you from obedience to what Christ has called you to? If someone came, even better, if Jesus from afar saw your life but drew closer to inspect it, what would he find? If Jesus, and he does, inspected your worship, what would he find? If he inspected your worship when you're here and you're, you're singing, what about when you're at home? What about in your, your finances, in your, in your family, when, he, when he's looking at those things? And he inspects those things. Is it full of deception? Or is it the real thing? Friends, deception is something we strive for often. We, we want to, to, to fit in. We, especially if, you know, if you're from that church culture like, like I grew up in. You know, you, you've, got that, you've got to deceive. You've got to keep up appearances. It's one of the advantages that lost people have. They don't have to even worry about it. And they don't. You'd be out in public and see people going at it, just fighting each other, yelling and screaming at each other, and I'm just embarrassed for them. I know they're not embarrassed. But if my wife and I want to argue, which we do, and I know that may be a surprise that we've ever, like, yelled at each other, Let's keep it quiet. Let's go in the house and yell at each other. Let's, let's sit down the deception. Let's, let's file it away. Let's be open and honest before each other and before God. And what we want, though, is that when people pull back the leaves and they look, there is the fruit of what God is doing in our life. And it may not be impressive. It may not be in abundance. But it's there. Because our worship is genuine. Because we're people of faith. Because we believe in what we pray. Because we forgive each other when we fight, when we, when we wrong each other. And we see God's hand at work in our life, bearing much fruit. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you love and care for our needs. You, you care for and help us, God, in our times of trial and struggle. 
Lord God, help us to be people who bear much fruit from your spirit instead of those who try to deceive by putting up good appearances. God, help our worship not to be mired, but God, our worship to be true and genuine. Help us to be people of prayer, God, instead of people who are robbers in your house. God, help us to give generously. God, help our hearts to be broken over our sin. God, give us, give us true hearts, not hearts that are full of deception. I got hearts that are attuned to you. Hearts, God, that are not afraid that someone might look and see who we really are, but, but rather, God, to show them. God, to show them both what you have done in our life and, God, what you continue to do, the places where we struggle and need your help. God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, I pray that you speak to each heart. God, all of us have areas of deception. God, that we would set those aside. And God, tune our hearts to you. Lord, we praise you for all that you've done in our midst. We praise you for all that you're going to do. And God, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to sing as we close up our time together. But I want to encourage you with this. Friends, one day, and for you or I, it could be much sooner than we think. One day, there is one who will look and know perfectly what our heart is made of. They will know perfectly what we have done in our heart and how our heart is designed. And friends, when that day comes, there will be no deception. It won't matter. It won't matter your time in the church. It won't matter your giving of yourself. It won't matter the appearances that you kept up. None of that will be relevant. God will examine our hearts. And he encourages his disciples and he encourages us to be people who are true. To be people who are bearing much fruit as a result of his spirit. To be people who worship in spirit and in truth. To forgive. To have faith. That, is, that should be our heart's desire. Friends, that may mean that we've got to overcome some, some junk that has gotten away, that we've got to tear down some deceptions that we have put up for people, that we've got to be broken. But all that matters is our honesty before God. And honesty before God results in honesty before one another. Is God showing you some places this morning? Where you have deceived others so that you could look better than you really are. Today is the day to tear that down. Today is the day to set that aside. Would you respond to God's word this morning as we sing?